Well, this is Alex Grant. Today's episode is brought to you by my new comic, Journey into Mexico, with Latin American artist Sebastián Guidobono, following the adventures of young T-Hax Tabaris, who wields the power of... El Fuego! During a very politically hot time in 1830s Mexico. Available in both English and Spanish on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kindle, Comixology, and other book outlets such as IndiePlanet.com. Cheers, and let's get started. Welcome again to the Comic Book Historians Podcast with Alex Grant and Jim Thompson. Today we have a special guest, Michael Dooley. Michael is a professor at Art Center College of Design, where he teaches design, history of comics, and animation. Beginning in 1991, Michael was a contributing editor for the graphic design magazine Print. Prior to that, he wrote for Amazing Heroes and the Comics Journal. He directed programming and hosted events for the Masters of American Comics exhibit in Los Angeles in 2005 and co-edited one of the essential books on comic studies, The Education of a Comic Artist. Education of a Comic Artist brings together many stars in comic history to discuss their viewpoint, even their corner of the vast multi-dimensionalism of comic books. It's a great intro for people to realize that comics come in many forms, from editorial, strips, books, novels, production to design to art to writing to editing in various genres, etc. Michael Dooley, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. I'm so happy to be here with you too. What we always do with the podcast, Michael, which you probably already know, is that because you're you're a good listener. I know that. Did you what say I, something? <laughs> uh, actually, uh, you listen to our podcast, actually, yes, uh, on your in your spare time. In my, in my spare time. Yeah, and I can go on record as saying that Comic Book Historians is absolutely my favorite podcast for many reasons. Oh, that's so, awesome. Yes. Well, well, we appreciate that very much. I know you were born in New York. I know you went to Pratt. I know you moved to L.A. at some point. But give us a little more detail about all of those things. Let's see. At some point means 1974. That's when I traveled cross-country in a uh, Tercel and settled in the L.A. area. So in 75, I started going to San Diego Comic-Con. Earlier than that, Flashback to me being two years old, that's when I started reading comics. I know that's a comic historian podcast question. So at age two, I was looking at and eventually reading comics. And at age seven, I fell in love with Harvey Kurtzman because I bought one of his mad comics. So mm -hmm. that's it in a nutshell in terms of getting my early start in comics. And the important part of that is it introduced you to comedic social criticism. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes, definitely. And it pretty much was extremely formative in my life. Just to get personal for a quick bit, when I was seven years old, that my mother and father got divorced. My, my dad left. So actually, Harvey was my surrogate father to a large extent, in terms of forming my sensibility, for which I'm forever grateful. Mm -hmm. So, And this was through your reading his work, right? That's through... Through the, the comic. It's picking the up... Comic. Yeah, it's picking up Mad Number... Is it 22? It was, the, it was the one where they did the Johnson & Smith ad parody on the cover, and the first story was Popeye. And it was one of those things that was such a quantum leap from little... Lotta and Baby Huey and the rest of it. In its way, it's like how 
Art Spiegelman and Bob Crumb talk about the Basil Wolverton mad being formative, mind-blowing experience. And for me, that was that was that. It was just I was just, you know, I spent the longest time reading that cover over and over and just fascinated that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it was one of those things where because it was so meta from the very beginning, it's like, okay, I've seen these ads inside the comic and here it is in front, only it's not really. And which actually made me start to realize something. Oh, there are actually people who there's a sensibility behind this. And it's like, okay, somebody's writing this, somebody's drawing this. It's not mm-hmm. just coming off the presses <laughs> because right. somebody pressed a button. So it was really formative in, in that way, in the sense that it piqued my interest in graphic design before I knew what the word graphic design meant. It's a crafted art form by people. Right. Yeah. Now I are one, as they say. <laughs> so, so, Michael, were you aware of like the name Kurtzman? Were you, were you no. able to like see like, oh, that's Will Elder, that's Kurtzman, that's John Severin? I mean, were you noticing the different styles at that point? From the first issue, I was I was noticing because there was, every, you know, each one of them had such a distinctive there was Wally Woods on on the waterfront and Elder did the poop eye. And then there was Jack Davis in there yes. as well. You know, they were so distinctive that that was part of that whole visual education that I was getting at that tender age. And then, of course, old Harv was nice enough to put out the history of Will Elder comic. Oh, uh, yeah. Would, <laughs> that definitely makes it more convenient. Sure. Yeah. Old Harv was really coming along at the right time all over the place there. And so, <laughs> as you can see, I'm gushing with uh, admiration. Yeah, he yeah. was uh, my first superhero. That, that awesome. Will Elder piece is so sophisticated. I mean, like, if you think that they're writing for 10-year-olds, it's impossible to reconcile that with that whole comic bit. That was just so brilliant. Yeah, yeah, that the fact that Popeye is running into Tarzan and Mammy Yoakum and Super Duper Man and the rest of it, it's it was this revelation. I come to think of it, I I don't know if I've ever spent that long <laughs> look, looking at a 32-page comic, that sort of thing. And you know, and of course the eyeball kicks uh, that that he put in as well. So, yeah, that was definitely a uh, a revelation. Were you aware that they were also working in other other genres in, in EC's line of comics, or were you just interested in the humor stuff at this point? At this point, I just knew about the humor stuff. You know, later on, I, I became familiar with the, the entire EC line. But at that point, at the tender age of seven, you know, I, I wasn't particularly tuned into Ghastly and, and the rest of them. So right. I was, uh, yeah, I, I was happy to do that, you know, and then there were the Get Lost, Andrew and Esposito and the rest, you know, the rest of them panic uh, out mm-hmm. of right. Feldstein's factory. So that was what got me by for a while. Yeah. Did Two-Fisted Tales, Frontline Combat, did those affect you in any way? Oh, yeah. I would definitely say so in the sense that it was... Again, part of that whole underground scene that came along, I was, you know, being, well, I guess, I believe I'm the same age as Spiegelman. It was one of those things where Harvey went on with Trump and Humbug and Help. So after 
mad changed. I was that well aware to start looking around for his other stuff, which of course led me back into comics like Two Fisted Tales and Frontline I Combat. See. So, so it was more were, re- retroactively you went back to that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And they were the first because I was still fairly young at the time. So, you know, the, by the time I was involved in Vietnam War protests, I had already had that whole sensibility formed again from whatever <laughs> dad mm-hmm. the second <laughs> so so did did pfeiffer become the your next big hero or were there yeah. ones in between wow you are so shrewd <laughs> jim there was the village voice that came along and so in the late 50s i started tuning into pfeiffer on that in the front of the newspaper and eventually got around to paul krasner's realist the rest of it and that sort of thing But yeah, the Pfeiffer newspaper comics. But before then, there were the, I mean, Pfeiffer was a special, there's a special feature in in the Village Voice. But in terms of newspaper comic strips, I was super addicted to that also from a fairly early age. So that was mind expanding in that way. That was pretty much my introduction to the, you know, the various other genres. So it's like when I was reading Popeye, I was already aware that, you know, it's like Little Abner was on the uh, front page of one of the newspapers. There were about five Sunday newspaper supplements that were comics in New York at the time. Luckily, every Sunday I would go over to my mom's mother. My grandmother would get all the papers and so my brother and I would just spend the entire visit, over, most of the visit over there, getting familiar with Dick Tracy, who was on the cover of another one, and, and you know all the other comics. So that was also supplementing my education. Right. And back then, it was pretty much, I would read like every single comic you know, indiscriminately from, from beginning to end. You know, I had my favorites, but yeah, newspaper comic strips. Yeah, imagine, imagine that that's how old I am. <laughs> that I can that I can talk about being able to spend a, an hour or two with Sunday comic supplements. Right, that's right. And, so, and you mentioned uh, the Paul Krasner's Realist, just for the audience, that yes. was from 1958, and you discovered that in 65 when you were at Pratt studying design, I think, right? Yes, exactly. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> I listened to you, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What made you go to Pratt? Like at some point, did you say, I want to be a comic book artist? At some point, did you say, I just want to go into design? What was your artistic trajectory at this point? Okay, great question. Thanks. I Just maybe even wrap up or do a transition here from Kurtzman. We were talking about the newspaper comics and one of my absolute favorite newspaper comics among those in the 1950s. One that I went to first was Smokey Stover. I realized in retrospect that those eyeball kicks <laughs> that Will Elder was providing was actually, you know, the groundwork was laid by Bill Holman. And yeah, I'm so thrilled about the Screwball book that came out this past year. Oh, so yeah. yeah, so the comics were definitely part of it. One of the things about going over to my grandmothers to read the the comics was it was a gathering place for all of my mom's relatives and she had several sisters and brothers it's a catholic family and and Mm -hmm. so and they brought their kids as well so we had a i got to hang out on those sundays with my cousin 
my mother's sister's son, one of her sons named Steve Degnan, and he was going to Pratt. At the time, I was going to Holy Cross High School in Queens, and he was talking about Pratt Institute. And I really started thinking along the lines of that even more seriously when, if I can just do this real, real quick, a little incident that happened in high school Mm -hmm. was there were brothers and lay teachers there. So I learned, you know, I took Latin, that sort of thing. But there was this one teacher who was very physical. It's like early 1960s. There was there was no problem with, well, even before that, in the 50s, go, going to Catholic grade school, no problem with the nuns beating shit out of you. But it was, and it happened even with the brothers and the lay teachers in, in high school. And so one time I was in, I think it was a geography class, and it was, you know, I never saw the sense of geography. And this is even before GPS, you know, it's like now right. nobody needs to know that, you know, unless they really care about the principal export of Ecuador. And so I was, I was doodling in my notebook instead of taking notes. And the teacher was realizing just from the way my hand was moving that, you know, that I was not hanging on to his every word. And so he came down and he, and he looked at these cartoons I was drawing because, again, it was that influence from reading the Sunday funnies and whatnot. And I thought for sure I was just about to get my head smashed into a wall. But instead, what he did was he picked up my notebook, went to the front of the class, held it up to the rest of the class. And he said, you know, Mr. Dooley is very lucky some people go through their entire lives without knowing what they want to do. And Mr. Dooley has already found art as his calling. And I went, oh, really? <laughs> but then it was just something clicked. That was the turning point. And then after that, I started asking, asking Steve more and more questions about what's this going on around with Pratt? And so 1965 to 70, I, I was in Pratt. Steve had graduated from Pratt with an industrial design degree, and he was hired right out of school by Ford. They took him to Detroit, the rest of it, you know, that sort of thing. And he was designing cars. And of course, being a teenager in the late 1960s was, of course, transformative. So even though I was on an industrial design track, at that time, I was finding out all sorts of other things, you know, in addition to countercultural comics and the rest. You know, mm -hmm. it was also reading Unsafe at Any Speed by Ralph Nader before he became a presidential election spoiler mm. back when he was a consumer advocate. And I was mm. like, this is the kind of <laughs> crap that's going on with the Pinto and the rest. And, and, and so the whole idea of working in industrial design, working for those kind of corporations that I was protesting as, as part of my rebellious Pratt years. So Anyway, long, long short is I, I decided I wasn't going to be part of industry. Actually, my first job out of school was as a photographer because I was doing freelance photography to pay my rent. I got hired by ABC to go down to photograph the Johnny Cash show after oh, I graduated. Wow. That's great. So, so I did that for a while. And then my career has pinballed. <laughs> my trajectory has been somewhat curvy, but that's basically the answer to Jim's question. Boy, I, I hate to just go into something as much of a trajectory as this, but I, I can't not do it. Johnny, okay. when you say the Johnny Cash show, do you mean his 
limited run on on television show or do you mean his concerts or the prison which would be the most awesome answer you could give what, what do you mean by the um oh okay if you tell me fulsome i will be happier that i've been in a long time but i i assume nah. that's not what you mean no actually it was uh, i wasn't stuck in Folsom. it was actually san quentin and I was there involuntary. No, the the real truth of it is, it was it was ABC TV that hired me in in New York. Sent sent me down there basically to do promo work because instead of an industrial design portfolio, what I wound up with was my portfolio of professional work as a photographer that I was doing again as a way of being able to keep myself in in apartment rent and and food yeah so what i would do this was 1970 yeah he had a show for a couple of years down in nashville originally broadcast out of the grand old opry and that's where i would photograph like during the week during rehearsal i would shoot the guests and such and then send the film off to abc and they'd use it in their promos for the upcoming show that sort of thing so that was that was that gig Oh, that's uh, fascinating. So you you got to, t- because that's a very important show in terms of rock and roll, because he brought in a lot of people that were not strictly country, people like, well, Linda Ronstadt walked a line, but he was important to Bob Dylan's history in relation mm-hmm. to this too. Were you taking pictures of people like that? Yeah, there were people, not Dylan specifically, but there were a variety of people coming through at the time I was in terms of actors, there was Dennis Hopper. That was uh, oh, cool. <laughs> that, that, that was pretty impressive. And God, let's see, it's been so. And it's one of those things too that since I was sending the film to ABC and I was young at the time, I I never even thought about getting copies of the photos they use. So I I don't really have any. So and and I haven't thought about it so long. But yeah, there were some people that impressed me in the long run. It was people like Carl Perkins who was there pretty oh, yeah. regularly that I was really impressed with. I mean, for me, I was a much bigger Carl Perkins fan than I was uh, Johnny Cash. So he was pretty impressive in that sense. Yeah, uh, very, Alex, various other people. There's, there's, there's a famous story where June Carter gave Linda Ronstadt $2 and said, go across the street to the five and dime and buy yourself some panties. Don't come back <laughs> without them. <laughs> oh, <laughs> There, I guess, is a story that leads up to that. I just want to know if you had any photos. <laughs> well, we could leave it at that and move, and move on. <laughs> no, unfortunately, yeah, I, I love Linda Ronstadt. And she's, I saw a lot of, you know, rock performers from the Rolling Stones at Madison Square Garden in the late 60s to all sorts of other people. But yeah, Linda Ronstadt is one that I regret not seeing either in concert or at the opera. Opry. So let's get to how you came to California. And then I want to launch into your book, because that's where we're going to spend a good amount of time. So what made you come to California? At the time, I was living in a, well, okay, the Johnny Cash show, that gig ended, came back, was living in a basement apartment in Jersey City with my then wife and my newborn son. And we decided, no, Jersey City wasn't the greatest place to be, you know, that that whole area. I mean, it's like New York wasn't the greatest place to be in the early 70s, right? You know, we're, mm-hmm, we're, we're right. talking... Son of uh, Sam. 73 was when he was born. Yeah, that was, that was where... That was a little later, right? Yeah. What's that? 
what was later? Yeah, Son of Sam was a, a touch later than that, but yeah, oh, yeah, 70s. yeah, yeah. But it was inspiration. The, the the sort of because New York was going down the toilet. There was right. there was that whole Milton Glaser doing the I Heart New York thing, that sort of thing, which didn't fix up New York. It just made people feel better about living in the shithole. Yes. <laughs> so, but you know, I decided anyway. We we packed up pretty young at the time. We came out here. I I wasn't working. Chris. Our son was uh, about nine months old in, in the car seat. Oh, wow. And so we just came out here and looked around for work and managed to manage to land some work. Before that, in, in Jersey, I was, I was working in a newspaper, and I actually I was a designer by that time, again, long short, graphic designer doing layouts and such. And I also started writing back then mm-hmm. because this was early 70s, and it's like... You know, it was at a time where if you wrote articles that get published in, this was a fairly major paper in Woodbridge, New Jersey. And so I, I started writing album reviews and concerts that I'd mm, go to okay. and sent them off to the record labels. And the next thing I knew, I was getting boxes of albums to me. So, and this was, this was aside from my other job. And then I also was like, they didn't have an illustrator at the time. And so I was still doodling. So they said, Oh, could you illustrate some feature stories that were running? And it was like, okay, yeah, I'll do that too. In addition to <laughs> the writing job that I wasn't getting paid for and mm-hmm. my, my full-time job anyway. So I was in newspapers, long short coming out here in 74, 1977, got hired at the LA times from 77 to 99. I worked as creative director at the LA Times, I ran their creative services department. Mm. So, wait, um, this was from '77 to '99. Yes, yeah, that's a I long was, time. Okay, that's the longest gig I ever had. When you were contributing to Amazing Heroes and such, that was during this time that yes, you're also working in, there, right? In the uh, late '80s, the nepotism story there is that my brother was at the time the editor of Amazing Heroes, and he right. And you know, and I was talking with him about comics, as we do all the time still. And the subject we were talking about, he was like, hey, you want to write that up for Amazing Heroes? And I was, mm-hmm. okay, sure. So that got me back into writing. No free records this time, but mm-hmm. you know, just whatever Fantagraphics managed to scrounge up to pay me for. And started out uh, Amazing Heroes and then realized that, well, Comics Journal is really where I belong in that situation. So I, so I jumped to there. And then after that, it was print. We're packed up. We're going to California. Tell us what happens between there and where we want to get eventually, which is you co-editing the education of a comics artist. And that's a long period of time. You're at the LA Times. And Uh, what else are you doing? And he's there. He was there till 1999. He he also contributed to the Comics Journal and Amazing Heroes. And then now 1999, it ends. And now you're essentially professorial and you're co-editing this book. Tell us what leads to the book. Or other things that you were doing too. Alex kind of skipped five years. I just went from 1999 until then. What were you doing also? Well, actually, from just to jump back from the late 80s to to print magazine, because that's Mm -hmm. pretty much the transition, Mm -hmm. is I got interested in writing for print magazine in the late 80s when they put out a special issue on comics. And I was like, oh, let me propose a pitch here. And basically the pitch was for, this is 1990. And it was at the time 
when High and Low, the Kirk Varnado show that was high art and popular culture that was including comics on display for the first time, notably. And I said, you know, I want to write about that. That got me hired and got me made a contributing editor. Then in the course of that, I wrote a, an article about Emigre Magazine, which is a graphic design magazine. And mm. from Emigre Magazine, they got interested in me and they wanted me to do an issue of their magazine, which involved interviewing various people from Cranbrook and CalArts, as well as Steve Heller. So Steve Heller is, just briefly, he's someone who's written, co-edited well over 200 books on graphic design. Oh, so wow. I got to meet him in the early 90s and got to go to his studio to interview him. We became friends after that, and we still are, I'm very happy to say. He was saying, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about doing this book, the one that eventually became Education of a Comics Artist, and I'd like a co-editor. I'd like you to, to be my co-editor. Nice. So it was it was his idea. He he took me on board and I uh, and I ran with that. So uh -huh. that was let's see, that book came out in. OK, yeah, I guess we have jumped because now it's, it's 2005, uh, it's 2005. 2005. So when did you guys start working on it? What year was that when you started working on it? Started working on it 2003. OK, I would say because it was a long process. We started out with outlining and wish lists of who we wanted to be part of it. The general concept was kind of like a modernization, a an update, a, a book version of the famous artist's correspondence school mm -hmm. and the draw winky matchbook covers. Basically, it's like, okay, you, anybody who's been thinking about becoming a comics artist, what do you need to know? Well, it's a lot more complex than anything Norman Rockwell and, and his gang back in the 50s was able to tell you. So wound up that we were able to get original contributions from well over 60 professionals right. in various aspects of comics mm -hmm. with that idea of people would pick it up and it would be a, a sampler kit really to be able to flip through it. It was by no means meant to be read cover to cover. So we just, we've got all sorts of aspects of it as I guess we'll be discussing momentarily. Yeah. We want to get right into that and dive, okay. dive in because we want to go through section by section, but okay. let me ask you a question in relation to making it, which is sure. it, it does have sections such as the comic business, the comics field, widening the field, education, and those, were those divided between you or did each of you work on all of the categories together? Not evenly divided at all. We worked together on both and it, it just happened that, I mean, Steve has certain interests, so that was what he concentrated on. And it was pretty much everything else was having me go to town, which I did a lot of. It's like, say in the what I call the action adventure comics that was all me it was basically Steve said as some people say is I don't give a shit at all about uh, superheroes just you you mm. take the superheroes you do the superheroes okay yeah yeah and I've got a lot of feelings about superheroes which is why the title wound up action <laughs> adventure mm -hmm. <laughs> comics right because it's not like it's you're totally devoted to superheroes that would be a misclassification yes I've never actually done a count, but quite a bit of the book is me. And he was definitely guiding me all along. This was the first time I was co-editing a comic and even a book. And even though he 
most of the comic stuff may have turned out to be mine. It was it was definitely under his expert supervision, so I'm mm. very grateful for that. We're going to go through a lot of the sections that will be interesting to our audience. We'll talk about what you learned, who you picked, why you picked them, that kind of thing. But then with each section, if you were doing it today, if you're doing an imaginary new edition, or I would hope an actual new edition, because I think there's... It's definitely called for at this point. Who you'd like to see interviewed, what new topics should be explored, what should be maybe changed from what was done originally, and in that answer, talk about the topic, whatever we're discussing within that that chapter. The Uh cartoons, the editorial cartoons, the political comics, that kind of stuff that's in that very first section. And then I'll turn it over to Alex to talk about the adventure comics and the adventure strips and all of, of that. So well, let's before talk- we do that, I want to ask Michael one more thing about your Harvey Kurtzman influence. So yes. you mentioned the Mad Trump help, which uh, inspired and and he worked with people like uh, Gilliam, Steinem, Crumb, mm-hmm. Spiegelman, and 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 fostered a whole generation of countercultural comics. But yeah. I noticed you left out a long period of his, which was his little Annie Fanny period that he did for Playboy magazine. Would you consider that basically not real Kurtzman? Would you consider that? just kind of a money grab. Is that an embarrassing time of his life? Or would you say that there is something to value in that professional phase of his life? I'm just curious about what you have to say about that. I don't know whether, to what extent he was embarrassed about it. I know that it helps Kurtzman, the bad businessman, make a whole shitload of money for the rest of his life. And it's one of those things where, yeah, there's stuff in there that's interesting, but you really have to dig for it. And I guess it was also one of those times where Okay, so I'd be about in my early teens when he started working there, and I'd say this is one case where he not exactly came along at the the right time because, you know, I found myself, of, of course, picking up Playboy for the articles. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing about Little Annie Fanny, it was it was so weird. It was it's just, you know, one of those things that, I mean, I, I can't even quite understand... <laughs> <laughs> the arousal factor there. Mm. Uh, it, it's just, she was such this inflatable doll, two-dimensional mm. person that uh, mm-hmm. it was pretty much that he lost his real opinion. That, that's when we, that's basically what was happening around that time was also when I was picking up the realist. So there was the transition yeah. there. Right, so right, right. yeah, he did 20 something years of Annie Fanny and with Elder but it was kind of like, for me, the pinnacle of Kurtzman's career, Kurtzman Elder, was Goodman Beaver. So after that, it, it was just pretty much, again, to get real personal, this was this was right around the time my mother passed away, and I was pretty much on my own at that point. Yeah. And so there was a transition there where pretty much Paul Krasner became my mentor. I was living in New York, as was he at the time. And so the realist became the Bible that the early Kurtzman stuff once was when mm-hmm. I was younger. That's basically it in, an, in a nutshell, as far as not really caring about Kurtzman, other than to talk about the production values. But, you know, you okay. Go. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It was a diluted Kurtzman. It wasn't the same as what it was before. And he was past right. his peak, essentially, as far as yeah. cultural significance and things like that. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. But, I mean, in the sense that so many people have 50 years where they were mm. doing spectacular stuff, considering late 40s to early 60s, that's like 15 years of dynamite. It still puts him up there in the pantheon 
for of me course. is God the Father. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, makes sense. I guess, uh, or actually, maybe if I was doing a Trinity, maybe Eisner would be God the Father, Kurtzman would be God the Naughty Son, and Pfeiffer would be God the Holy Spirit, not the actual Spirit. <laughs> this is a very Catholic Trinity description. I like it. Okay, well done. Yeah, we're we're there. We're going there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jim, go ahead. Okay, so the first section that covers, it starts with a section on, on magazine cartoons, then one on editorial cartoons. And then on political comics. Yep. In terms of the magazine cartoons and things like the New Yorker, but also a lot of other magazines going back further in time, that's an area of comics history that really does not get nearly enough discussion, in my opinion. Mm. And it's significant, I think, that that's where you start. What was your thinking in terms of that? And you have three articles in that, three writings on it. How did you come to those versus other ones there's so much you could have chosen from you did start with the new yorker signifying that as significant versus puck or some other things what were you thinking in selecting the ones that you picked well in terms of this being a book that the lay person could easily pick up and appreciate as well as some of the more in-depth stuff so it's like you know all levels all ages sort of thing my thought was that in terms of people who were going to be looking at the cover, reading the title, that sort of thing, probably for the most part, what they're going to be thinking of is the single panel cartoons in a broad sense. You have the geeks and the rest of it, but you know, there's whatever preaching to the choir. So I thought that magazine cartoons was a good place that pretty much everybody is familiar with and, you know, in, in all its various aspects. And of course, the New Yorker being iconic. So what better person to ask than Bob Mankoff, who at the time was the cartoon editor, a really funny guy in person, too. That's where it started. And as I recall, speaking of the devil, Paul Krasner was also one of the mm -hmm. people that I got there to he talk about chapter, the, car yeah. the cartoons in The Realist. Most famously, your, your fans would know his Disneyland Memorial Orgy double-page spread that Wally Wood drew on the occasion of Uncle Walt passing away. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I didn't know he did it for Walt <laughs> Disney's death. I didn't know that. Yeah, that was pretty much it. That was the idea was, okay, actually on the cover of that magazine, there was a just Mickey Mouse himself with a sign that said, God is dead. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so this is pretty much, Paul was able to extrapolate okay, now that their God is dead, what's, what's going to happen to them? Right. And so, yeah, orgy time. And so, yeah, while, you know, <laughs> Woody gets involved. So if, if in terms of the magazine cartoons, you don't focus necessarily on, on an individual so much, but I wondered if you were mm -hmm. doing it now. I, I just bought the Fanographics Art Young book, which is just brilliant. Have you seen that? Oh, yeah, I have that shirt. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I picked love, it up as soon I, as it came out. Yeah, I just love that book. Are there artists of that earlier period that you'd like to discuss in that magazine cartoon section? And do magazine cartoons still have any power or do they become just a New Yorker joke about not getting the jokes anymore? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good good point. Yeah, the New Yorker, that's that's kind of definitely magazine cartoons in that format have definitely had their day. 
but still in all, there are, in terms of if you were looking at a kind of book that's maybe the equivalent and more closely, say, tied in with what's been going on now, you've got a 50-year Mark Mort Gerber book that came out this past year, a retrospective of his work for The Realist and his other publications, you know, such as The New Yorker and whatnot. So, yeah, if there was going to be an equivalent that's like, say, even maybe more close than Art Young, who would say full more in political than, yeah, it would be uh, Mort Gerber just doing great stuff. And in terms of what's happening now, what with the whole dilution of the New Yorker cartoons, where it's gotten so, that whole separation, that whole word image separation where they have it's like, okay, you write the cartoon, you right. write the caption, that 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 mm-hmm. sort of thing. So it's like, they're pretty much pointing out that there's no real solid connection there between the cartoon and the caption. If you can come up with three best every single week or other week or whatever it is. So in terms of people doing something different, that great concept that you had there of redoing the book. I really like that. I'm going to give that more thought. I would probably, so there there was the Mort Gerber book. There would be, let's see. Yeah, well, of course, Pfeiffer's still around. God bless him. Stan Mack, another person who got his start back in the Village Voice with his real life stories. But in terms of what's being done now, I would say I would go to Mike Gerber. And either of you familiar with uh, American Bystander? Yeah, the, yeah. The, it's a actually uh, I think I'm familiar with it because you've mentioned it to me before. Same here. Yeah. Yes. And have you seen it's one cool thing about it is if you go to their website, they actually let you download a PDF of one of their old issues. Right. So it's like a sample is, is free and they have such a wide mix. Of, basically, you pick it up and it's going to give off a New Yorker vibe, but it's much more cartoon oriented in that sense it's kind of like the love child of the new yorker and the national lampoon and you know if it was a threesome probably spy as well and so they have the old new yorker folks in there like bob bleckman and and george booth uh, Mm -hmm. mk brown as well as contemporary people rise chast seymour quast howard cruz and Mm. you know sorry again that uh that he passed, <laughs> Shari Flanagan, Rick Geary, for crying out loud, Peter Cooper, you know, right. just, I mean, all oh, these people great. are there. there. Mimi Pond, Ed Sorrell doing covers, you know, that sort of thing. It's just really a spectacular place that's just, it's a humor magazine. Right, that's and awesome. It's, yeah, it's heavy on the comics. So I would definitely, I mean, Mike Gerber was one of my guests in my class. He did a great job just talking about American Bystander. And since he was the one who, back in the early days, resurrected the Yale record, I'd have him uh, talk about that as well. Maybe have him back as a guest speaker at another time. But in terms of, yeah, for magazine cartoons, that would be my lineup. Is that kind of what you're looking for? Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that is that's fantastic and needs to be done, in my opinion. Talking oh. about the changes in those cartoons, because it was such a historically important part of comics. And we know in my generation, we could name so many different artists. And it's hard for, I mean, like regular people could name Arno and those the Playboy cartoons, the dark sensibilities of some of that. And a lot of those people mm. have passed in recent years. And I think it would be helpful to know that there are still artists like the ones you just mentioned that still can do a single panel 
gag in a magazine that's not just comic book related, but for mass audiences. Let's talk about another mass audience form of comics that is really, really being hit hard these days and is a is a vanishing breed, which is the editorial cartoons. When you did this, they were still a vibrant factor in terms of political discussion, and they've taken a real hit in recent years, haven't they? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, magazine cartoons, too, because newspapers and magazines have taken a hit. I mean, daily newspapers, are they're already uh, digging the grave for those. Yeah, editorial cartoons, that's, that's all part of that whole newspaper defunct sort of thing. I mean, luckily, fortunately... First person that comes to mind is Ann Telnaeus, who's just still doing, the Washington Post is still running cartoons, and hers is just, in my evaluation, just top-notch. And she herself, I've met her, she's just a wonderful person. I'd you know, love to have another excuse to get together with her uh, again. And so then editorial cartoons, one person that I've had a couple of times at my class was Mr. Fish, Dwayne Booth. He's probably the most radical political cartoonist. He does stuff for the nation and for a lot of the left-wing websites and, and such. And he's, he's one of those take-no-prisoners sort of people who, during the Obama administration, hit him hard. And he's you know still doing it savagely to our present administrator and he's he's just really smart and he's extremely knowledgeable on the history of editorial cartoons in fact i wrote an article about a, a book that he did that really just takes it back to hogarth just does the entire history of radical cartoons it's just absolutely wonderful so so those two would definitely find their way in, into that slot have there been other periods of time where political editorial cartoonists are being fired from their papers for being political? Because that seems to be what's happened. There are some well-established editorial cartoonists that have been working for 20 years are being let go because they are critical of, of the current presidency. Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah, certainly. Yeah, the cartoonist who was writing for, basically was a... Uh, leaning right in any event this gave them a whatever there was a one step over the line that managed to give them an excuse to fire him but that's a big part of history i mean there was there was one situation speaking of the nation just to kind of flip the coin victor navaski the editor of uh, nation who sure. had came up with a cartoon that actually was objected to internally it, it was the cartoon of basically Okay, I got to make sure I don't get it confused with the. There were two very similar cartoons, and this one. Do you, do you know the one I'm I'm talking about? Where basically it's the globe, the world is on a bed, and lying down. Uh, yeah, and about to be <laughs> fornicated upon. Right by right. Russia and the U.S. Soviet right. Union in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, and and it, it, yeah. It, 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 I think that was that was the one because there was another one that the Realist published. But in any event, the Russian. I thought the that US, was the Realist. Yeah, that was the realist. And, yeah, I and, saw that yeah, in, based, in the, I saw that panel in your book, actually. That was in the book. Yeah, that that it's his turn now, and then me again. Okay, so I'm going to. It was a David Levine cartoon of Henry Kissinger fucking the world, and it was that whole David Levine crosshatch style, just this wonderful rendering that actually was objected to by the by the women on staff of the Nation. Because it basically for 
And this is back when they would call such things political correctness. You know, now they have various other phrases. I think woke has been used so much that that's even <laughs> gone. And so I'm, so I'm unclear as to what, uh, you know, what the next phrase is, right. is, is being used. Yeah, I'm not getting the memos anymore. And actually, to his credit, Victor actually wound up running the cartoon of Kissinger screwing the world over the objections of the very strong objections of the staff. That'd be a, a, a great I think that's to... an essential one. And and just the yes. notion of political correctness or Me Too or all the different things that make teaching hard today and it makes uh, um, cartoons and humor and stand-up comedy and everything else more difficult because of the new sensitivities for good and for bad. Yes. Yeah, it w- would be terrific to talk about that. And it would also be a through line. I mean, this by far, you know, the education of a comics artist, this isn't an update. This is this is a complete ri- revise. This is volume two that we are now putting together and that your listeners are actually getting are hearing from the conception stage. Right. Yeah, only appropriate that we're talking about fornication and and, and right, conception. Right, right. And me and Jim are the two world powers and you're our guest. <laughs> <laughs> Ow! <laughs> it's it's your turn, Alex. <laughs> uh, but, well, uh, wait, but before, before that, I have to say, not only am I enjoying it, uh, but I also, when this book comes out, I'm saying when now rather than if I haven't even lined up a publisher. But you help me out with that, right, guys? I am ded- oh, yeah. dedicating it to you two. You know, oh, the great. dedication yeah. is already there. Yeah, we got Alex and, and Jim right right in front. So I wanted to ask uh, before we, we we move on to um, the adventure stuff, single panel gags. We were talking about that and editorial cartoons and political cartoons. Talk about single panel gag. Yes. I think that there is truly a mass need to consume single panel gags from this visual standpoint of there's a phrase and an image and then boom. And there is this need, I think, that humans have. It's a creative need that I think separates us from four-legged creatures and stuff. <laughs> is that, <laughs> Thus that memes, we, we, right? <laughs> we, yeah, we have that Sorry. need, but, but I think that in our current <laughs> social media world, memes have largely sure. are now wow. replacing that as far as public mass consumption, people are getting that from memes that take no real artistic skill of a slightly sociopathic phrases are being used, have replaced the public desire to go out and buy something of a higher and and more creative etiquette. Do you feel like that's also contributing to a decline in single panel gags as a higher art form and on a commercial level? Well, it's also kind of continuing along with that discussion we were having about the New Yorker. I mean, of course, many enter, but few are chosen with their caption contest. But, you know, it's pretty much basically the same sort of thing that whole my kid could do that sort of mentality. And it's pretty much, oh, I I can do that. You know, just the New Yorker isn't sharp enough to accept 700 contributions I I gave. And so it's it's become something, (laughs) something so easy to do so slapdash that it's become trivialized that's a good point and i think uh, i think i'm going to have you contribute to that chapter on yeah on i can totally because i've analyzed this and i've thought about these memes have destructive influence on the arts and i think it's just one of the many things where the internet it kind of went wrong at some point 
Well, I, I hope that uh, somebody comes up with uh, a, a meme of me saying fuck memes. Uh, <laughs> it'll have yes. Baby Yoda saying it, and that'll make it all okay, though, for me. Oh, there you yeah. go. So cute. Yeah. yeah. It's so Ooh. cute. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. Political comics, because aside from what you were talking about earlier, there's not a lot of that. World War Three hung in there for a long time, but it's not really something that we it, it was once a pretty pronounced early in comics history there was that was sort of a beginning of comics in great britain and here and it doesn't really exist very much anymore does it well coincidentally my contribution from peter cooper is is called launching world war three where basically he talks about how it really has been the longest running underground comic book in the universe. But in terms of the power of political cartoons, I have two words to say to you guys. Charlie Ebdo. Right. Yeah. And, okay. And that, yeah, that is actually, that was the inspiration for me actually proposing my class, my history of comics class originally, because it's something I've always been thinking about. I mean, I teach a, I've been teaching a history of graphic design class for the longest time and you know that's been my passion all my professional life but comics i've been researching since i was two mm -hmm. and i've always mm -hmm. been thinking about well i got to do a history of comics and then that horrible those murders happened and i just i wrote stories for print about it my outrage and i still felt i had to do something more and i have been and and starting that class was was one of them which was one of the reasons that my i only had one guest speaker in my first class after it started up and that was that was mr fish he's one of the few editorial political cartoonists with any guts that sort of thing but yeah in terms of the power of political cartoons i mean those people they knew they were putting their lives on the line and they did it anyway. I mean, right. that's that kind of courage is just it takes my breath away thinking about the, you know, the, the guts of those people to do it. And I've got nothing but admiration for them. And I and I realized that that sort of stuff, you know, on a global scale, it's it's still going on. I mean, there's so much global censorship that comes along. You know, you can read about in other countries every day, you know, that there are people being put to death. So, right. yeah, yeah, yeah sure. you know, that definitely is part of that political comics chapter. And it also speaks to the relevance of it in 2020 here. So, Michael, before you mentioned Charlie Hebdo, I was going to bring up Doonesbury. <laughs> and then once you brought that up, now I have to bring up Doonesbury again and Trudeau, right. but in a, in a yeah. different context. Yes. So talk about what Trudeau said about the Charlie Hebdo and what your thoughts are on that. Okay, I just for starters, I've uh, ne <laughs> I've never liked Doonesbury. It's one of those things where he was doing a college comic strip back in college, and it never stopped looking like that. And and he, it seems to be a point of pride with him. And so I mean, so I had that ongoing prejudice coming in since the first time I saw those those college strips. And then that he would go and he would actually blame the victims as he did was just disgusting. It's it's just like one of those people that is, you know, it's just I'm I'm just very sorry to hear that that that, that wasn't challenged more than it was. And I'd love to do a round table. 
if anything, you know, not for not for this book because it just what he did was was so fucked up in the first place that you know it just you know doesn't doesn't warrant that much attention. And I'm I just like people to to move on from from there. So I, I wouldn't even want to in, include anything like that in in the books. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's just very sad. And as you can see, it still still makes me very angry. I've got I've got no love for Doonesbury's. Right. No, and June was a very important strip for me. But when Trudeau said what he did in terms of the Charlie Hebdo stuff, I thought that was a little on the I hate to say cowardly side, but I don't think it was constructive. I thought it was not helpful to some degree. My other question, and then we're going to turn it over to Alex. During your LA Times experience, did you run into Ted Rawl? Speaking of politics and comics, at that (laughs) point or not? Let's see. I've interviewed Ted Rawl about it was I it was a two part print feature that I did on Susie Cagle. He had her his disagreements with with her. She's doing political cartoons, kind of on the spot reportage along the lines of what Stan Mack was doing with uh, Real Life Funny, where she would go into the Occupy movement camps and draw what she sees there. In any event, she and Ted had a uh, differing of opinion. So I interviewed the, the both of them. But in terms of, so I, you know, I gave him his voice there and I respect Ted for putting out those books that he did a while back on alternative comics, where he really uh, gave a, a forum to introduce so many of the, the unknown people. It's just, yeah, if you look up alternative comics, Ted Rawl, you'll, you'll see the, the list of people he had in those volumes. And that is all for the better that he did that. I respect him for that. I know he had an issue with Art Spiegelman having his old boys club or his school of visual arts uh, <laughs> club and wouldn't let other people in. But that's something that uh, it's just, that's one of those things where I'm, I'm a little more toned down. I think both sides have their point there. The fact that Art Spiegelman, when he's editing a publication, he is going to put in things from his perspective. It's, you know, it's like the best American cartoons of the year sort of sort of thing. It's like, if you're the editor, that's what you do, you know, and, and that sort of thing. But Roll also had other points about Spiegelman that definitely held its weight. So it's good to uh, continue to keep that in mind. So I'm glad you glad you brought it up, but it's in a nutshell. So I'm a big fan of adventure comic strips, and I started out as a kid reading adventure comic books. And as far as comic strips that I really like, I really like the Raymond Flash Gordon. I've read all of uh, Milton Kniff's Terry and the Pirates. Uh, I've read Wash Tubs. I'm a big Wash Tubs Captain Easy fan. Roy Um, Crane, the greatest. Yeah, Yeah. I've read all of Roy Crane's run on Wash Tubs. And Scorchy Smith with the the Noel Sickles run specifically. And uh, so let's talk about the comic strips. So what were comic strips that were important to you as a kid reading? You named a couple earlier, but tell the audience, what were comic strips that you thought, okay, wow, this is a good story. I'm going to keep reading this. In the adventure genre that we're we're Mm -hmm. talking about here, uh, Mm -hmm. or in the superhero sense? Well, I would say just, I would say probably more of the older strips of like 30s, and 40s, not so much the superhero stuff, more oh, okay. just, just the adventure stuff, basically the progenitor stuff to the superhero stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that goes back to those days for me as a kid in the 1950s where, yeah, I would pour over 
Alex Raymond's Flash Gordon and uh-huh. Hal Forster's Prince Valiant with the captions, that sort of thing. And of course, Dick Tracy yeah, uh, was, was definitely part of that whole action adventure, you know, where I would be checking out the Crime Stoppers textbook all the time. It was in the 50s. It still had a bit of an edge. It wasn't quite as gritty as back in the early days when right. <laughs> when his his villains were really nice and fucked up. <laughs> yeah. But also, Dick Tracy was shooting those villains in the head, killing them, too. The 30s run is incredible. Yeah, definitely. That was that was definitely its its heyday. But again, those comic strips were primers for mm-hmm. me in, in terms of leading me back into finding out the good stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know, we would say that comic strips are an influence on the comic books, right? Eisner has stated as such that comic strips that he read, even Bob Kane, who's a little dubious in his histories, but he said that he was also <laughs> influenced You're being so by... Yeah. <laughs> That comic strips were a big influence on him as far as the early comic books. Has that been a little bit of a mini field of study for you in a sense of going back and looking at the 30s stuff and then looking at the early comics and contraposing some language or transition between the two media? How do you feel that the one media affected the other? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's why in my trinity i i figured that will eisner uh, will yeah. will deserves the the god the father title in the sense that and i, I know we're going to get to masters of american comics mm-hmm. later but just to jump in there he was pretty much the the transition figure the masters of american comics as it was displayed here in los angeles the hammer museum had the comic strips and the museum of contemporary art had the comic books but right. still eisner was part of that comic books it was like the comic strips ended with peanuts and speaking of of eisner as a progenitor he paved the way you know he also came up with whatever you want to call it the factory system for producing kind of taking away that individuality right right so that now there's this this whole list of credits for the yeah for the mainstream comics yeah but yeah to go back to those comic strips you take a look at dick tracy was part of that and they showed Uh displayed so many of the good ones those like we were talking about the 1930s just back you know this was chicago this was the depression these were people totally trying to get money by you know you know they were hungry and And it was produced for the chicago tribune syndicate as well so right yeah uh, syndicate yeah definitely and in terms of our fandom overlapping here it was like milt kniff was the person that they chose for action adventure and for me i can certainly understand it in terms of the kind of influence he had it wasn't as dramatic as the buzz sawyer and wash tubs but right. you know i wouldn't have mind seeing at least you know if there was like a subdivision of that category i I would definitely have roy crane in there too so you can see so much of what roy crane does now in comic books there are plenty of people that still draw from his work i would even go on to say that roy crane had an ability to put adventure with comedy together and i think that's actually a recipe for like a lot of the marvel comics now they throw adventure with comedy and even the marvel movies mix adventure and comedy and I think Roy Crane is really important in the history of combining the two things to create a real effective entertainment. Very good. Yeah, yeah, those and that artwork is to drool over except 
you don't want to go putting liquids on duotone boards. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Eisner mentioned his influences. So Harriman yes. with Crazy Cat, Seeger's Popeye, and then, as mm-hmm. you mentioned already, Kniff's Terry and the Pirates. Were those strips that you've read and were they important to you as well? Yeah, it was It was in the, the early 1940s that Harriman stopped doing Crazy Cat and justifiably so it was not picked up by anybody else because I mean seriously who could ever so again this was this was a kind of a, a coming back sort of thing but yeah Popeye there was the the Sagendorf and the and of course the yeah. Max Fleischer cartoons and the right. and the re, and the rest of it the animated cartoons from Popeye to Betty Boop to right. Superman they were definitely a strong part of that but uh, mm. yeah it, you know again it was nice to go back and experience the whole Thimble Theater Right, right. Popeye and the rest of it. That's interesting. This is a side question. This is like with Jim and the music is Pfeiffer's work on the Popeye movie and how that movie seemed to combine characters from the strip. But then it had almost like the Max Fleischer-esque almost kind of language about in a lot of the scenes. Did you feel like Pfeiffer's Popeye script, Altman direction? Do you think that was an effective Popeye movie? I'm just curious because you know a lot about a lot of the factors involved there. Oh, gosh. This this is maybe one one tangent that you might have to splice out because I really I can't remember I saw it once and I don't mm-hmm. remember being that kind, kind of forgettable right kind of forgettable forgettable yeah yeah uh, that's what I mean uh, it, uh, all the okay. ingredients all the ingredients you think would be good but it, it wasn't yeah, that great yeah it's like oh you know look at Altman look at Robin Williams look at all the talent uh, yeah. I disagree I disagree Jim so likes much it. on this. Oh, <laughs> you trouble, Alex! You troublemaker! <laughs> you and him fight. <laughs> the, the juxtaposition of the the comic strip coming from, which is what Pfeiffer is doing in the script, and what Altman is doing in terms of the Fleischer cartoons and right. so forth. That's what creates it creates a real fission, and that's interesting. But as somebody studying film. It is a fascinating film because of that contrast okay. of ideas. Somebody that loves Popeye, watching those things play out like a debate about which one is more interesting, the cartoons or the, the comic strip. Does it fail as a movie a little bit? Yes. yes. But is it an yep. interesting thing to study as a film? So much so. Well, I, it I, is. Yeah, especially if you've read the strips and then you're familiar with the cartoons. And you see the elements that both elements of the movie. It's interesting from that perspective. I think just from a mass audience, it's tough for most people to grasp that stuff. And not your curse, but but fuck the mass audience. I care about what I like, and I like All right. it. The mass audience it wants to go see Titanic, Look, and I'll leave uh, yeah. it at that. Right. Yeah, well, that's that's does, does that bring us back to superheroes and, uh, and, <laughs> yeah, and nicely Martin done, say, Michael? You could do a if you want to stick with the movie theme. I've got two words for you, Martin Scorsese. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Um, no, and but, but let, me, <laughs> let me ask a quick question, Alex, and I'll go back to you. But on on the transition in the book from political comics two comic strips and this carries over you set it up michael when you said that i asked about art young and you said was that that was more editorial cartoons than magazine cartoons even though he did both it seems like as the flow of this book goes 
there's always like, well, that could have been in chapter preceding it or the chapter following it. There's a lot of natural flow in this. So in, in comic strips, Alex is asking you about these specific ones, but the ones that I would think of would be Crockett Johnson's Barnaby and mm. and mm -hmm. Walt Kelly's Pogo and those which are political so become very, very, and we, we mentioned Trudeau, obviously, but I, I know your feelings on that, but there, <laughs> there are a lot of shoot. There's a lot of comic strips from editorial cartoonists or that are focused on politics. How do you decide when you're doing this, which section something might belong in? And what are your thoughts? About, I assume that things like Pogo were of great interest to you. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. That was that was all part of that 1950s era with Pfeiffer and 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 the rest of rest of them, and it and it was done in in such inaccessible way. Yeah, that that's definitely part of it. Yeah, if you look at say in the comic strips section, the four people who contributed to that, it's not not very political. For me, the the interest in in comic strips, one interest that's been revitalizing the field has just, you know, got to do with the history. Of course, there was, you take what Peter Moreska is doing with Sunday Press. It's like, right. you know, that is so, what a godsend. It, it is. is. So, it recreates the size and the magnificence of the Sunday pages. Yeah, yeah. Just the idea, of, I have a clear memory of, of my brother and, and, and me on our stomachs in the living room of our grandmother's house. You just open that spread and wow, plenty, plenty of real estate there. I mean, Peter Cooper wound up in political comics and he does comic strips, as did uh, David Reese with his Get Your War On. He wound up in political comics. So comic strips was, that was the decision. It's like following political comics, you have comic strips. We've already just had two chapters with politics. Let's switch to comic strips. And then after that, kids and teens comics. So it right, was right, that right. kind of a, that, that kind of toning down of that section. Something uh, for everybody, something for everybody. One other thing, Michael, on that, which is we talk about political comics and politics, but all things are politics to some degree. And I think one area that wasn't done enough in terms of comic strip history, not, not in the book, but in, in, in actual comic strip history, is women as politics, race as politics, those things. And what Boondocks did is significant, but we have an opportunity, it seems like, in comic strips today to delve into diversity and different kinds. Of, I mean, we talk about Me Too as a as a negative, like awareness and, and wokeness as a negative. But there's also a great positive in what comic strips can do about sexual politics and otherness in different ways. And it not be so white male that it traditionally has been. And I, I wondered if that's something a direction that also should be covered in, in a, a new version. I agree with you to this so much to the point of, and I'm going to have to talk with Steve Feller about this, but I'm after hearing that and everything else that's, that we've been talking about, it's fuck the dedication. I want the education of comics artists volume two to be edited by, by Mike, Alex and Jim. Okay. There you go. <laughs> I like it. Okay. All right. I'll do it. Yeah. Okay. It and, shall happen. And, and that's what actually to go back to greasing you guys. This one of the reasons that comic <laughs> book his story is that a three-way reference again. What, what is yes, that? indeed. Um. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I knew you'd pick one of the reasons that I think 
comic book historians is the world's greatest podcast is because of the way that you folks put together the people that you have on there. You put together shows that you can go back and listen to years later. Right. And it's, you know, that, and it's so fresh. And it's so, yeah, thank you. and it's so fresh. It's so smart. You've got Chiarello, Fingeroth, Jaken, Trina, the rest of them going back to Bob Beerbohm and Rick Marshall. I mean, this is really what podcasts for the ages should be. And I thank you for that. Oh, that's nice. Oh, thanks, Michael. That means yes. a lot to us. Thank you. We care about the effort. And that's why I think we resonate so much with your book, because I think we feel like I your book does now. the similar thing in book form. And I think that's really marvelous. And that'll be the, the kick. It's like when this book uh, comes out, people will be able to go and be part of the inception of right. Education Volume 2. There you go. So, okay. Uh, as far as the strips go, this is kind of a, a more global question is the staying power of a good comic character. And it's tough because not everyone can draw a figure and then everyone will continue to want to read about that character. So Bill Griffith wrote about in one of your chapters, the Zippy the Pinhead mm -hmm. and the staying power of a good comic character it's hard to get a good grasp on that because all the characters are so diverse and different from each other. You know, Peanuts probably looks a little bit like Kathy, but then those look different from, let's say, a Flash Gordon character or some uh, well-illustrated Prince Valiant. Is there a theme? Can it be put into a sentence, the staying power of a good comic character? How does that get created? That would be great to put in the chapter of actually the creation of comics, which right. is also a chapter which you're going to be in charge of putting together. For me, it's it's always so so much about form and content. I mean, yeah, sure, certainly there are comics that if they're generic enough, you can pass them on from, from one person to another. And, you know, you brought up Pogo. Walt Kelly did it, and they tried to see if it could manage without him, but no, it couldn't. So there's, you know, there's right. a Pogo is something that is all of Walt Kelly, the way Crazy Cat is is all of Harriman, and there's no way of passing that along, you know? And, yeah. and I mean, yeah, with your example, who's gonna be the inheritor of Zippy when Bill passes it along? That's interesting. It sounds like it matters about the creator, and then their creation is like a lens to the audience, and if that creator is switched out, that lens, the, the quality of that lens and what people are getting out of it is changing, and it, so it sounds like the creator link to that character is, is really important. That's kind of what you're implying there. Oh, yeah, yeah. For, for that sort of thing, you know, and as I was also saying, it's about the subtleties and complexities. If you pretty much have a character that can be totally summed up in a sentence or, or, or so, then, yeah, you can pass it along uh, fine. And there's no trouble. But if it's got those layers and that visual aesthetic to go with it, you know, which is always important always a component that needs mm -hmm. to be considered then the character lives and dies with the creator yeah so it's a case-by-case -case basis i'm curious about that if it's if it is about the 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 character itself or luck and in, in who comes on board afterwards but i think of things like alex raymond books where they still work Today, I mean, what the oh, artist yeah. that came on Prince Valiant after, right up now to uh, mm -hmm. Yates, is still a joy to look at. Those it's not how, and I, I think of Buck Rogers, and I think of Tarzan, and how many great artists right, have done right. Tarzan. 
Whereas you think of some comics like the ones we're talking about, or as simple as or seemingly simple as Charles Schultz, peanuts could not be done by anybody right. else. Yeah, it, it seems like exactly. uh, adventure is easier to transition between different people, but yep. that's interesting. But the comedic cartoon, that's harder. In terms of longevity, by being simplistic, that has lasted since the late 1940s. I have one word for you, Archie. <laughs> you know. Yeah, there you go. That's continuing for sure. <laughs> and yeah, and yeah, and they're fucking around with it. It's now <laughs> now Archie is is more like a Goodman Beaver parody of Archie. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Yeah, that's anyway. actually true. Yeah, yeah. So to transition, and actually the staying power character connected to the creator let's use that to transition to comics you know steve gerber was kind of like that with howard the duck because uh, it it just howard is not the same without steve gerber and that leads me to comic books now so (laughs) as far as your comic book section you know there's some interesting creators that have chapters in your book so jim steranko obviously who who i'm a big fan of and we've had on the show before there are two things he kind of writes and i think he kind of looks at it that way but it also just comes down to the way the two parts that comes into a comic is first the writing of the comic he mentions the pulp precursors to comics in there like how the shadow was a precursor to batman and how he read a sure. lot of pulps and pulps were a huge influence on him and then from the visual of the comic his big influence was cinema putting cinema into his comics and putting those camera angles and the choreography panel by panel. So it seems like pulps and cinema writing in the art of the comic, it seems like that's Jim Steranko's kind of thing. When you read his Captain America and Nick Fury and then his later graphic novels, what was your impression of his of Jim Steranko's contribution to comic books and the comic medium graphic novels? What was your impression of Jim Steranko? Well, certainly his contribution started out with his volumes one and two of of his history, where he got into, as you were saying, all those roots with the shadow, the spider, and the the rest of it, which is truly the origin story of, of superheroes from that sensibility, from the literary sensibility. And yeah, from the visual sensibility, when I first saw it, it was impressive But then it was one of those things where I was going, oh, yeah, I see what he's he's doing. You know, this was like this was post Batman TV show. And, you know, it was okay. you know, comics, pop art and that kind of stuff. And so you look at his stuff and you go, okay, there's the DeCurico and and there's the Dali. And it would have been nice if it was transformed more than if he had made it his own Mm -hmm. and while it isn't just straight appropriation it isn't a cut Mm -hmm. and paste job it's no yeah you know with the clocks and the columns the rest of it it's so close that okay if this is meant to evoke otherworldly for anybody with a basic knowledge of surrealism no you're just sending the mind off in another direction that said he is a master of composition Yes. of lighting, the wonderful stuff that he's done. You know, you think of Guido Crepax, the, right. the kind of chiaroscuro, Alex Toth and the rest of it. And, you know, yeah. it's just, it's brilliant. And, but when you ask me specifically about the Captain America stuff that people go and point to uh-huh. uh, right away, it's, yeah, that kind of came and went. That, that right. for me, didn't have the sustaining power that the rest of his small body of work did. 
Right, right. Like Chandler, and then um, he did that Outland, what, for Heavy Metal magazine? Outland, he did the comic mm-hmm. scene that evolved into media scene. Right. I have so, a lot of those, yeah. There's stuff, and he, yeah, he actually, his country, my interview with him lasted twice as long as what appeared. I mean, half of it is on the cutting room floor, you know, right. so he's he's extremely knowledgeable and and really fascinating about what he had to say. But again, it was a space limitation he had i think pretty much the longest piece in the book and it could have been twice as long <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah and i uh, i think michael i think michael that he kind of and this may be in keeping with what you're saying i think he's sort of lichtenstein's surrealism he just takes the base thing from dolly and puts it there in comics rather than understanding philosophically what it is the sure, way that exactly that other people do when well put when someone like alan moore wants to do what anarchy is he understands it intellectually and you can see it in every page that he's capturing the politics of an anarchist when steranko is doing the notion of a surrealist he's just copying and it's not in a swipe way but he's just he's just emulating what he sees on the page without getting it philosophically is what i would say but what I would say is one of the main visual standouts of his Nick Fury run is it's James Bond movies were a huge part of the Nick Fury. And I think if you were to look at the stuff coming out of Marvel in the late 60s, it's fun, Silver Age stuff. And But I would say that the stuff he did specifically stands out, though, in that he still punched through a lot of what was expected of a Marvel artist by Stan. I think he was still able to punch through that and still make a statement when everyone else was like, okay, I'll just draw it like Kirby. I think that Steranko still punched through in a way where under the strict vision of what Marvel was supposed to look like, he was still able to go in and make a statement, especially with the, some of that horror stuff and the romance comic he did. He still was able to do things that other people couldn't at that time in the late 60s when certain things were expected of, of artists and writers. Absolutely. Right. My only yeah. con- my, my only criticism was his clocks and what he's right. doing right. and yeah. being right. credited as, as a surrealist or anything like that. I think <laughs> that's more just an emulator. Right. But, right. but in terms of Kirby and that stuff, you compare what he was doing quickly to what Barry Smith was doing, and it's like he's much better at taking Kirby Barry Smith learns how to steal from other artists instead and not Kirby, and that's how he becomes famous. But, of course, that's pre-Conan Barry Smith, right? I mean, his Conan... No, I'm talking... He he steals from Conan. I mean, on Conan, completely. But he's stealing from other master artists, not Dolly, obviously. I see what you're saying. His style is not an original style. It's an incorporated style from fine arts. Right, right. The illustrative style that it evolves to is more of a fine arts kind of style. I see what you're saying. Okay. All right. That's good. Which is cool. Uh, Yeah, yeah, which is still cool. Yeah, for a Marvel comic, of course. The great discussion, guys, by the way. I mean, that was stimulating. I don't know. Did did you feel that? Did you feel that? Do I need a cigarette? Do we need cigarettes? (laughs) Um, I could use some more grease. (laughs) We need more grease. Yeah, let's keep it coming. Let's get more grease. Sure. Oh, okay, I think this conversation <laughs> is certainly animated, but it's uh, also getting X-rated. Yeah, uh, there you just go. To, to drop uh, a drum reference or a Bakshi reference, actually. <laughs> so you know, and and if you want to to wrap that up with a personal recommendation that I have for mm-hmm. you know what I probably 
I guess if push comes to shove and people were asking me, what's your favorite comics book of the past year? I'd have to say it's a biography of Andy Warhol. It's a 560 page biography of Andy Warhol done in a multiplicity of cartoon styles. And it is just the most incredible work. If you have, have either of you heard about it? No, I haven't. No. Oh, okay. It's a, uh, originally published in Germany, and it's just, in terms of picking up styles, it is so hysterical. It's like every single one of those nearly 600 pages is, is just a, a masterwork in creativity. And it's just, right. you know, it's, it's, you want to talk about people being able to emulate styles with a complete understanding of what they can do and what they should do. Definitely look up Andy, a factual fairy tale, which is basically it's the life and times of Andy Warhol because it does get into fantasy and it's put out by, well, Typex. That's one of my recommendations to just to wrap up the pop art, the uh, pop art uh, section. Yeah. Just two more questions before we move on to uh, the graphic novel section Jim's going to do. Bill Sienkiewicz, I feel like he impresses me as well as his own artist, just as Taranko impresses me as his own artist. It's interesting because it seems like he has that early phase where he was trained with Neil Adams. And there was this talk of, especially during the early moon nights, of him being a bit of a Neil Adams clone. But then he evolves and ascends into his own expressive art form. And you see a lot of various influences in it, like Gustav Klimt and other people. What's your impression of Bill Sienkiewicz's contribution to comics and his stance of being a true comics and fine artist? He, he kind of combines the two things. What's your impression? My impression is extreme respect. I think it's it's like as a kid, I admired Harvey Kurtzman just so much. And, and as someone who reached adulthood and discovered Bill Sienkiewicz, his work in general and straight posters in particular, it's like he is on the top of that list in terms of action adventure <laughs> heroism. He's a hero to me in terms of how he's expanded. He's taken the stuff that have roots in Baron's story, right. who I also interviewed. And, you know, he combines it with what Dave McCain was doing also, right. another person who was working both sides of the uh, divide. Well, right, more, right, right. Some, that's the but, Sandman covers, and that's fine art and right. comic art together, yeah. Right, yeah, not, not, not so much working different sides, but basically knocking down the walls. Yeah, yeah, and, there you go. Yeah, and... I mean, I'm I'm so happy that he's came to my class to talk, and I'm also happy that in a couple of months that uh, he and I are actually going to be uh, sharing a panel at the San Diego uh, Comic Fest. Excited about that. And w- and one last thing too, there are, also in that chapter is David Mack, and another recommendation if you haven't seen uh, cover the book that was written in a six issue series and is just recently, last year, been put into a paperback written by Brian Michael Bendis and illustrated by David Mack, who really gets back to his kabuki roots and does something to me and in so many ways is even more spectacular than kabuki. Have you seen cover, either of you? Mm, I have. Yes. I have a slight allergy to Bendis, all things Bendis. Oh, but... okay. <laughs> I liked his Avengers and I loved his Daredevil. But I, I love this Daredevil. The reason I don't like him is because of his Avengers. But that's another conversation. There you okay. go. Okay. 
But what I really want to have, because I hate what he did with the Avengers so much, mm-hmm. and I'm not reading his Superman. There you go. <laughs> the protest continues. But I, uh, but I like it. I haven't read an issue, but I like it a lot more than I do the John Byrne Superman. I can say that. Okay. Well, there you go. See, there's there's a silver lining, Jim. <laughs> there's a silver does, lining. Does it matter that that cover is not superheroes? Yes, and I like some of it. I read Power. I mean, I don't hate all things Bendis. I don't like Bendis working in mainstream comics all that much. I think he's lazy about that. This I will try. Oh, good. I'd love to hear what you have to say about it. I think I'm good. So, Jim, why don't you go with the alternative comics and graphic novels now? So, alternative comics. What is the definition of it? I would think that alternative comics, the definition in most people's minds, if they even think of anything these days, is probably love and rockets. And so when we redo this book, I wouldn't use the word alternative. I think it's pretty much had its day. It would, Hmm. you know, it would be something independent comics. There you go. uh, You know, pops up. So that would be how that would be updated and Mm -hmm. just really, you know, thinking in terms of the independent press, basically. Right. That's interesting because Chaikin has very clear definitions of those two things and does not count them as the same thing at all. Are you coming from that kind of position on that? Oh, he has a, a difference between alternative and independent? Yeah. Okay, no, we're we're not disagreeing at all in the in the sense that basically what I'm saying is alternative is as a word that means anything significant is is pretty much dead and buried. So just let's get rid of it. Let's not even let's not dance on the head of that pin. Call it independent at this point and move on from there. Because I think I think alternative implies that it's not mainstream or it's not for most people. And maybe uh, by saying independent. Maybe that's better in a sense that it, it's just coming from a smaller publisher and uh, anyone. Yeah. It's open for anyone to read it, basically, there something like go. that. Yeah. Because, yes, because talking about Love and Rockets or Cerebus or those alternative comics that had their roots in underground comics but were not underground comics, that was one direction. But then there was also first publishing and Eclipse and things where they were doing things that were independent and that they weren't the main two. I think they're both words that still have some merit. I get what you're saying about alternative comics, though. And talking about alternative comics, in your book, you're talking about people like Gary Panter and things, and not whether it's Love and Rockets or Cerebus or things that came out in the 80s as alternate comics that kind of changed the direction to some degree in terms of how they were marketed, the retail, the sales of them, and all, all of those things that are complicated. The question I would have, first question I would have is, historically speaking, what do you think the impact of Karen Berger as an editor and Vertigo Comics in general had on comic book history? Yeah, great question. And certainly a great heritage because the amount of people that she opened things up to, the amount of focus, her coming from the literary rather than the comics geek uh, world was really a boon. And so much of it up until that point was people who were once upon a time, I was a snot nosed comics geek putting out fanzines. And, and, you know, now, now I'm the editor of a major (laughs) metropolitan comics uh, company. So her independence and what she did there was broaden the horizons and really pretty much 
you could say that she was one of the people who made the term alternative comics irrelevant. And not to put it in the past tense, because she's still doing good stuff with Burger Books. Luckily, she's continuing there. It's pretty much giving that sensibility that, yeah, like, you know, fuck the formula. Let's right. do this. You know, right, let's, right. And let's try that. And yeah, it, it's it's going to continue. To, what what she's done, her the legacy of Vertigo is is going to continue still for quite some time. So yes, yeah, def- definitely. So even uh, even though it's gone, in my mind, if Vertigo hadn't come along and the writers that were brought in to work there, going from Moore to Morrison and and so forth, I think I would have been comics would have lost me during ah. that period. Uh, okay. Alex would be here because he was he's younger and was reading the Marvel books and things and joyfully experiencing Tom DeFalco and so forth. But, <laughs> Which I was. I mean that. I was reading the L- Lascaux cave painting cartoons. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> but for me in law school, I don't know if I would have made it if not for Vertigo. And then, of course, wow. obviously the year of 86 and all of the things that came with that Watchmen and so forth. But that made a difference for people who mainly traveled in mainstream comics, but were caught by the intellectualism of what Berger brought to that, I think. So when I think of alternative comics, I just add a pitch for that, even though it's mainstream DC as the publisher, it was certainly alternative in its definition. Right. And its reach was such an important part of the process. Kudos to DC for doing that. And that's Levitt's hiring Karen as his assistant. And then he saw a lot of talent and wanted her to have her own brand at DC. So uh, that was, I think, uh, Levitt's uh, helped facilitate that line of comics uh, with Karen Berger being obviously the creative engineer of the whole thing. Yes. So what would you say in terms of this section, besides changing the title, what would you bring aboard currently? And one question I would have is where does... Kirkman fall into this in terms of no one's been more successful in the history of comics in terms of money probably than he has with Walking Dead and so forth. Are those alternative comics or did he just create his own mainstream comic and that's where it should be discussed in the previous chapter on adventure and so forth? And maybe does alternate comics or independent comics now mean pitching toward the movie industry and TV industry? Well, that's become, yeah, that's become an essential, but yeah, there's, there's no way of separating that again. For me, I would think in terms of how would you approach a chapter called independent comics? I think one thing I'd like to do that isn't done that much in the, in the first volume of the book is to go to the editors, go to D&Q's, go to Eric at Fantagraphics, you know, talk to even, you know, like Scott at IDW and get their input rather than say keep it narrow focused to the point of talking about say walking dead in specific do it in in wider brush strokes i think that kind of expanse would be more useful to the reader in the sense of hearing it from the publisher and the editor would really be covering a lot of important points that you wouldn't get as immediately with just kind of breaking it up into individual people you know what i mean does that sound mm-hmm. right yeah 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 No, I think that's probably right. Let's talk about graphic novels section for a minute, because when I read your book on that, that's where it seemed to me that that was one of the most personal areas for you 
in talking mm. because your field of graphic design really came into prominence with the people that you selected with the chip kids obviously and the chris bears right. with uh, kim deach that the, and rick gary that the focus was so much on with all of those people the visual design of the project that they're working on i'd like you to talk about that for for a minute or two in addition to People like the ones you just mentioned, uh, Spiegelman, and also Satrapi. I also wanted to include at least one person who wasn't part of a, you know, who you would first think of in terms of graphic novels, which is Hoche Anderson, who was doing these interesting bits of work. You know, he, he, you know, he wound up with the King biography, and, and right. he was doing so much else. But it was one of those people didn't really know about him. So one of the things that I wanted to do in the book was, yeah, let's bring in. <laughs> Peter Blegvad, who did Leviathan, and people are who readers might be going, what? Well, you know, everything else has been good, so let's see what they have to say. So, mm -hmm. yeah, definitely you pinned it on me in terms of what I was trying to do, coming at graphic novels from a graphic design. I mean, the fact that I'm even teaching a history of graphic novels, for me, it's a subdivision of the class I'm also teaching at my other school, History of Design, because graphic novels comics are for me a, a subdivision you know that sort of thing and and it's something that doesn't go anywhere near significantly recognized as much and this is something that actually when i was listening to howard jakin talk just uh, yesterday at the long beach comic expo he was saying what's fucked up about people who are looking at comics reading comics critiquing comics is they don't know that it's form and content you know, he gets he gets shit for Black Kiss. He gets shit for the divided states of hysteria, you right. know, because people are reading what it says and not taking the form into consideration. Basically, it's without context and without context. They're beating him up and they're calling him a right winger for no good reason at all. And so much of the study of, of comics and graphic novels leaps over into the academic world. So many of the courses in, I know we're going to be getting around to talking about uh, education as well, but so many of the courses in, in history of comics and graphic novels are coming from that viewpoint. They're coming out of the academic sphere where people are, oh, you know, we got to start a, a, a comics history class. Let's get somebody from the English department. Let's get someone who knows their literature. And so for me to talk about graphic novels with without including both halves of that phrase, it was what uh, Chaikin was saying. It's, it's content without context. Yes, it was personal for me. <laughs> and to take that even further, it's like in, in terms of experimentation, and maybe I'm anticipating your next question, which would be who to think about when it comes to including graphic novels next time around? Does that sound like a, yes, something? Yes, that, that uh, would okay. definitely be uh, part of it. Okay, I would say that that I would include Seymour Quast, who, when he was in his 80s, decided to become a graphic novelist. Are you familiar with Seymour? No. Okay, the graphic design history there is he and Milton Glaser started Pushpin Studios in the late 50s. And basically, they were coming out of a comics sensibility. In fact, Milton Glaser, who you're familiar with, most known for the Bob Dylan poster, the profile, and the I Heart New York symbol, 
that whole graphic design that would that was coming he talks about how he was influenced and he was saying just about all those graphic designers from his era from his generation were coming out of reading prince valiant and the sunday funnies mm -hmm. and so seymour quas has always had a very cartoony sensibility about him and he was in his 80s i believe when he decided to start doing graphic novelizations of classics like canterbury tales dante's divine comedy and he was doing a magnificent job he did like three of those and he's still at work on it he just came out with another book that was released just like a month ago this is elvis the biography of elvis presley that he worked on with uh, stephen brower this is one of those things where for Steve Heller and me coming from that graphic design sensibility so much of that reflected there was that thread throughout not just graphic novels but through the whole book that whole realization that there's more to comics than what the typical comics readers go to for me it's like yeah i'm delighted to you know read the the best of the year lists in comics but so much of what they include are things that they're not aware of that they should be. So this was kind of a, a secret agenda, unspoken. Right. We never really talked about it that, that mm -hmm. Steve and I w was doing. So that's all I have to say about graphic novels. What there do you, you think? Okay. What do you think? <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> no, we'll, we'll have to have a further conversation on that subject because I would like to talk to you about, because of graphic design, I'd like for you to talk about the debate about whether you have to be a good artist and whether you have to be in order to make a good graphic novel how important the design is or isn't to that but i i think we need to move on but keep that in mind for a, a section in the book because i would like to have that covered <laughs> okay <laughs> that's delightful all right we will do that <laughs> And tell him Groucho sent you. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, Michael, let's talk about the comics profession, the business of comics, the creation of comics. So explain what you wanted to accomplish in, in these two sections of your book. And I think it's great because I think a lot of books that talk about comics, they almost focus on the pictures or sometimes the narrative. But I love that you really put some of the bones and meat of actually creating and the business of the comics what were you wanting to accomplish with these two sections well it's it's actually all of these are subsections underneath a larger section and and right. it's like uh section what is it four was the comics profession and so this is like you know this is kind of getting to that left side of the brain sort of thing it's like okay here's some practical tips kind of thing you know it's it's fun to talk about the creativity but let's get down to some brass tacks in the sense that, and starting again from the very beginning with Heidi McDonald mm -hmm. talking about Comic-Cons, which again, anyone picking up the book who's familiar with comics, she's not saying anything new to them, but still it's it's an introduction. It's kind of a basics and a primer. And then it, it just you know basically builds on that, going to popularizing the, the comics, which business and creation there's overlap there too like you were talking about other overlap between right. comic strips and politics that hold to what extent is coming up with a memorable character how much of that belongs in creation and how much is business and we can certainly finesse that and refine it and figure out how to present it in, in both in terms of the update 
the business of comics now would have to include finding out who've been the most successful right. uh, comics creators who got their start on Kickstarter, right? Right. There you and, go. That's a whole new thing that wasn't there in such full force in the early 2000s. Yeah, to find, I mean, even Michael Gerber's American Bystander, that got its Kickstarter start. And, right. you know, I love it so much that when he said, now that we've got it started, we're going to Patreon. I never had a Patreon membership, and I just signed up right then. It's like, right. that's yes, your contribution. I want, to come, I want this to come to me forever. You yeah, know? yeah, <laughs> right, right. Internet definitely changed that. Yeah. There are some chapters I really enjoyed because you can't really get some of these people anymore. So Joe Kuber, he talked about the school, the dedication, the commitment, and the practice it takes, the hours of physical practice and work it takes to be good at drawing comics and the construction of comics. What I like about that is you can't, it's not like you can get Joe Kuber to write an update on that, but you're able to get a piece of this guy in your book. And I think that was really impressive. And I think it, I was kind of, and I think a lot of readers would be surprised that it takes a lot of actual hard practice to be good at drawing comics. I, I felt like that chapter discussed that really well. Yeah, and he was he was wonderful to talk to. He was just very generous with his information, and yeah, I miss him. That was a good interview. I really enjoyed oh, yeah. doing that. Then I really liked Craig Yo's chapter. He has a great, it's almost like a rock and roll love letter to the great <laughs> uh, cartoonist from Topher to Wally Wood. And then there's also some other cool chapters. You got Trina Robbins and her summary of women in comics, which I think is really important. One to show the women in comics discussion as it's a, it's a, to make it a more complete book, which you did, but also that she's written so many books on it that it's nice to get that quick summary to get people interested and, and getting other Trina Robbins works and really expanding that discussion. Oh, I was just going to say in the way she talks about, you know, she's got books out talking about the actual women creator of comics, but here, She's talking about Archie comics. She's talking about yeah. uh, why Patsy Walker is important exactly. and going to sock hops and even touching on Simon and Kirby's young romance. It's it's yeah. like and getting it from her perspective. She is so wonderful. She's she's smart in so many ways. But yeah, I don't have to tell yeah. you that you had that great interview with her. So right, you right. you know. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, she's a very strong personality. Love she her. in the, in the Jedi world would be uh, on that Yoda level. Of comics history, go. so to speak. So yeah, now, just as, don't put her in a fucking meme. <laughs> there you go. Baby Yoda guacamole, anybody. Uh, so as, oh, as, far, as far as uh, Teal Triggs, there was a great discussion of girl comics, Bill Wagon's Katie Keene fashions, etc. I'm just impressed that you were able to, not everyone thinks of that, those aspects of comic books, but this, in the creation of comics and in, in that whole profession of comics, to throw that stuff in there, I thought that was really smart. This really needs to be some, there could be a whole class on this book you co-edited and created. Oh, yeah. I'm, I imagine I'm doing sections of a couple of chapters in my uh, class. But, yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, right. that would be there. So there's actually a, a whole university to be set up based on this book, right? <laughs> and you could actually just make a couple subsections into their own classes. I mean, it's, it's vast. It's probably not meant to read through in one go, but to not go refer all. to it. But a... but but I did, yeah. and I felt uh, <laughs> it felt trans I felt transformed after. Uh, <laughs> really, and you're part of that, so I appreciate it. I was mentioning in jest about turning the book into a university. I, I mean, the the whole teaching comics idea. One of the things I 
I hope to talk about with, with Jim is the fact that you now can get master's degrees. <laughs> oh, yeah. I agree about the teaching on that. And also, I would add that people are using in other courses are using comic materials, things like March, more and more. Yeah. It's a fascinating period for that with a lot more acceptance, but also a lot more resistance along the lines that we talked about previously in terms of what is woke or what is acceptable or what is offensive to different students and also politically where it fits in with the, the mind meld that is current university politics. It's, right. it's hard. Let's talk about education in that context, but also what about you as a teacher? And we're going to kind of phase out of the book at this point into what your own experiences are, where you're teaching, what you're doing, and what your experiences are with students at this point. Yeah, well, I'm in terms of transitioning, speaking of teaching, it's like that was that was one of the last chapters was about teaching comics. And to redo that in 2020, we would work on doing research on the fact that you can now get master's degrees in comics, which just didn't exist in 2005. You now have places like the California College of the Arts. And of course, there's James Sturm's Center for Cartoon Studies. So you want to bring that in as well. And it's worldwide, too. You know, you've got the University of Dundee in Scotland. That's wonderful. It was one of those things where just to continue along with what you were talking and the politics of, of teaching it in this day and age, as I said, the inspiration for me to finally get up off my ass and propose a comics history class came out of the, the Charlie Hebdo. And it was one of those things where so this is 2015, okay? So I was, I asked the head of the department who okayed it. Fortunately, just like with relative ease, I was happy to say. And right off the bat, I said, okay, so in my syllabus, am I going to need to put a trigger warning? And she was, you know, <laughs> it was like, you know, scoffed and waved her hand. It's like, you know how to teach. Fuck that shit, basically, right. is what right, she right, was right. saying. It was like, you know, so you know how to handle it because it's like this is even pre all the other stuff that it's that's going on now. And so, yeah, I, I pretty much know how to communicate with the students. There are certain sensitive areas. There are, well, it's now history of comics and animation. Mm. And yeah, you're going to talk about racism in comics from Little Nemo to Bob Crumb. An animation just like all over the place <laughs> from Little Nemo to uh, whenever. So it's like, you know, basically I tell the students, you know, I will say to the students, OK, here's what I'm going to show you. Here's whatever it might be. Pictures of Mohammed. I usually when I announce that I'm going to be showing pictures that certain people are offended by, like the Mohammed cartoons, right. I usually like to, at that time, have a slide on the screen, a picture of Magritte's This Is Not a Pipe, mm. you know, so to, to give it that kind of context, or I could put the Bob Crumb quote, it's only lines on paper, folks, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that sort of thing, but still, I can understand it, I can, I can empathize with it, and it's like, you go into stuff that we all have taken for granted, we got to consider, we're talking about 1950s horror comics the treatment of women there is ah oh, it's rough and so i'm pretty much happy to to be a part of that i'm also pretty much happy that nobody's telling me that i have to be to i have to do anything i have to follow these rules or anything like that it's just like okay i respect the kids i'm conscious of what's going on there i take care of it and usually 
it's like whatever, take a 45 minute break huh? and it's not going to affect your grade at all. I completely understand. So in answer to answer to your question, there's, there's no uh, problem there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Maybe just for a minute, talk about some of the guests that you've had come to your class. Oh, well, some I've already mentioned. I, I mentioned Michael Gerber came to talk about his American bystander. And in the course of that, he also talked about the cartoons, focusing on the cartoons. And of course, he was familiar with the New Yorkers. So we so we got into that. And I'd really like to have him back to talk about his time in the 80s, where he resurrected the Yale record, which was basically Yale's equivalent of the Harvard Lampoon. And he uh, made yeah. the point that when it came to satirical college magazines, Harvard Lampoon's specialty was putting out the writers and the, the Yale Records specialty was putting out the, the artists. And so I'm going to have him come back and talk about that. But yeah, Howard Chaikin came to my class and just enthralled everybody. What I had done was I had prepared a slideshow because it's against my teaching religion to if I'm teaching a, a, a history of design comics animation class to not have at least one image on the screen at any given time. So right. basically what I did was I did a Q&A with him and I prepared, basically I structured the questions and coordinated them with the slideshow. And so Howard was facing the audience, he was talking. And as I was asking him questions about this and that, flag, black kiss, whatever, I would have the slides in the background. The students could see it, but Howard wasn't even aware of it, and it didn't matter, that sort of thing. So that was cool. And he enjoyed it so much that he and Bill were, at one point, talking about putting on a, a show together, Bill Sienkiewicz. Then the question came up. Bill said, well, where, where would be a venue for this? And, right. <laughs> and Howard said, Mike Dooley's class? <laughs> there you go. And so, and so in, uh, yeah, last semester, they came and they just chatted up. We had to move to a larger room than my classroom uh, because the crowds were, you know, the news got wow, out on, that's cool. on Facebook and people were writing on Facebook, I'd kill to be there. And I, <laughs> it's like, that's know, awesome. I, yeah. There, there were so many, there were my students, of course, and they were the main core and, and, and the focus, obviously, so that these guys weren't preaching to the choir because the main point is all about the students as it is always with all these guest speakers. Mm -hmm. And, but still in all, there were people who were able to bring up other aspects, talk about black Hawk or whatever, and that sort of thing. And like I say, with the slides, I had that. So that worked out great. I've had Scott Shaw come a couple of times and it's always different too. It's like the first time he came, he talked about his own work. And the second time it's like, well, you know, I don't want to. So I said, talk about your influences. And so he put together a slideshow of the 13 most important people in his career, that sort of thing. And so I, I already mentioned Mr. Fish, plenty of other. Uh, oh, one thing just recently that, that happened that it wasn't even planned. I had Bill Morrison as a guest. You yeah. know, he was editor of mad at the end and he had also yeah. just recently came out with a yellow submarine graphic novel that he put together and it was like we were talking about what what to talk about and i said well the simpsons is is also an end of an era come talk about the simpsons and so he came he talked about the simpsons he had a slideshow as usually did a great professional job and and he brought along six guests and wow. And 
one of the guests was Sergio. Oh, wow. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, wow. Aragonis. That's great. Oh, yeah. Come on. <laughs> you know, it's great. You know, so I've, I've, I can go on. And, you know, I haven't even talked about all the people in, in animation as well. But just in terms of just what's coming up, I've got another return engagement from a group of live performers called the Captured Oral Fantasy Theater, who perform <laughs> regularly at, at Comic-Con and various other venues. They are local. They've, they've put on a show at my class and coming up is going to be on Valentine's Day. They oh, are nice. going to do EC Comics Love Stories. Oh, wow. That's great. And from all the genres, including crime, suspense, horror, yeah. sci-fi, uh-huh. and the rest of it. Beautiful. So That's you know, great. It, you really approach your classes with creativity and passion. It sounds like you approach your classes as its own art form in a way. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I... I appreciate that compliment. And and they're watching a radio play because this theater troupe brings their own vintage 1930s microphones and they have a table set up for sound effects and everything like that. It's it's just incredible. And it was like last time they did one presentation and it was like, I'd like to have you back. And Ben, who heads it up, said, oh, what would you like us to do? And I said, available in early February. How about EC Comics Love Stories. And he was wow. like, yeah, that sounds like fun. So they fun. did that. They're putting that together, even as we speak. And then I have another one, just to talk briefly about animation. Yeah. There's a documentary feature on the Spike and Mike's Sick and Twisted Animation Festival that started the careers of... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I like the, uh, that. Yes. Uh, of a whole lot of people. And in the documentary, they've got Among the Talking Heads or Will Vinton, Bill Stout, Weird Al, Bruno Bozzetto from Allegro Non Tropo, Bon Kurt, oh, wow. uh, Bob Kurtz, uh-huh. Marv Newland from Bambi Meets God. Anyway, so the director is coming. She's going to screen this film, which is actually set up to premiere at the Slamdance Festival. So it's just like breaking out now and she's going to come along and she said she's going to bring along some of the people some of the local people who were in the film to talk about it so that's That's yeah i mean i'll stop there but that's like two of the people from from this coming semester that i'm really excited about or two it's actually two groups an eight (laughs) an eight person theater group and a four six eight person screening of spike and mike's film anyway Yeah. yeah That's awesome. Speakers. I love first great set of guests, great instruction, and I love the passion. You have such great passion for this. It, it's really uh, great. <laughs> and you yes. were talking about the EC and stuff. I know you have a bunch of things, Comic Fest and other activities, but let's limit it to the one that you are most excited about coming up <laughs> at WonderCon. <laughs> And please, please, and I don't know anything about it. Tell me about what that one is. Bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it just so happens that among the presentations that I'm giving in 2020 is basically it's a, what would you call it? Seduction of the 1950s comics. I'm doing a panel with Sydney Phillips. She's an expert on romance comics of the 1950s. And then another guy, God, I forget what the hell is it? Let me look at, oh, Jim Thompson. Yeah. Jim Thompson is also going to be doing something on EC Comics. And this Jim Thompson guy, he's so much of an expert that I've been putting together a flyer for my EC Comics love story for my class that I've been going to him for advice and he has gotten me some great panels that I'm going to be including in the flyer, in the post. Nice. And I'm going to be talking about another aspect of the 1950s comics. 
So anybody that's going to be at WonderCon, please come see us. We're going to be presenting a panel around the theme of seduction, and it should be in comics of that 1950s era, and it should be great fun. It will be. So that's, that's WonderCon. I want to talk about Comic-Con for a minute and okay. ex- what your role is going to be in that. I'm just going to say the word Eisner's, and then you're going to tell us what you <laughs> are and what you can say without talking too much about the subject, because I don't want to get you uh, get anyone in trouble. But <laughs> and the winners Eisner's. will be... And the winners will be, but I'll have to kill all your listeners first. No, no, no. It's nothing like that. The Eisner Awards, as usual, will be given on Friday, July 24th, just a couple of days after Jackie Estrada put up the announcement saying that it's time to submit for artists, publishers, comics people to submit their entries in the 30-something categories. And with those entries, I and five other people are judges, and I'm very honored to have been chosen as one. And I'm among a great group, a fantastic group, one of whom I knew already, Jamie Koval. He's definitely into comics history. He's been writing about comics history for about 25 years. And anybody at Comic-Con has probably seen him because at the panels, he's the guy that goes up with a tape recorder to the dais and asks to be recorded. And he actually, for the past, I think since like past 15 years, he's been posting not only San Diego Comic-Con, but all sorts of panels and all whatever Comic-Con he can get to. And post them online at thecomicbooks.com. Exactly. So definitely worth checking out. Really nice, uh, uh, really nice fellow too. He is indeed. Oh yeah, he's a sweetheart. And the others I'm I'm looking forward to meeting with corresponding, but as it mentions in the uh, official announcement that's been posted, we judges will be meeting in San Diego in in late March and mm-hmm. actually be doing the real heavy lifting. Right now oh, okay. we're doing a, a whole lot of prep. Anyway, the other four are Martha Connog, Alex Gresham, Simon Jimenez, and Laura O'Mara. And dealing with them electronically has been nothing short of a delight. I can't imagine a better group of judges that I'd like to be with. And they all are coming from such different perspectives. And they all have smart attitudes about comics in different ways than me. So I am so looking to not only get to knowing them, but also getting enlightened to their perspective. It's just going to be a blast as far as I'm concerned. So I'm, 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 I'm really looking to what is basically in reality and literally in the literal sense of the term a once in a lifetime opportunity oh yeah so, this is this is this is a fun huge milestone and well deserved uh, you, you've contributed oh. a lot in various forms just to graphic design analysis commentary your classroom your students you're a historian you're you're an artist. We're really impressed with your work, and we're really glad you listen to our podcast as well. And I'm uh, and to really, be a really, part of it as well. Uh, well, thank, thank you. you. And honestly, you being an Eisner judge is well deserved. I congratulate you for your life achievements as well as your future achievements. And <laughs> this is one of them. Call. Your place in comics history will be cemented forever if you could move Alex and I from the bleachers at the Eisners over to the table section. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Exactly. I, I think, yeah, I think the judges have a certain amount of pull, but in, in, when it comes to seating, I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll probably have to bring there a folding chair myself. But the good news, <laughs> but the good news about it is, when the three of us actually get 
the education of a comics artist volume two published, mm -hmm. then I will have an inside connection to the Eisner awards. There you go. Think I about like that. I'm, I'm ready to go. Anything. I'm not saying anything, but right. you know, no problem. My fingers on my nose. Yes. <laughs> to God's ear. <laughs> to God's ears. Yes. <laughs> so this has been a fun episode of the, comic book historians podcast with alex Rand and jim thompson we've really enjoyed michael dooley's work for a long time now we've actually through a process just through online uh, we've we've actually become friends and we've hung out in person we're privileged to have you on the show thanks so much for being here thanks michael thanks to the both of you